Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Did any of you guys get outside today at all? Did anybody like, is it like nectar, like sap for the soul, like to just breathe in a little bit warmer air and feel just a smidge of sun on the skin? It's so refreshing, so good. And now we go back into the tundra, but, but it's all good. It's all good. It's good to be here. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He uses the seasons. He said uh, when, when Noah uh, landed the ark, he said that until the earth ceases, the, the seasons will not cease, summer and winter, harvest and springtime, that it will be continual. And he uses the seasons uh, in every way. And we go through seasons in our soul. And sometimes in the, in the, even in the winter of the soul, it feels like everything is dead. Everything on the surface feels dead. It feels like God is gone. Life is gone. There's no hope. But that's when the roots go deep and, and it's good. And then spring comes and it's new and fresh and alive. So he is good. He is good. So uh, we're in the book of Acts tonight, chapter 13, if you have your Bible. <clears throat> I, I, I went running today. My kids um, play soccer. They play pickup soccer, and they played Monday, and I was making fun of them because I said, everybody's going to be so out of shape. You guys are going to die. Well, I got mine today. I went, and so you're going to hear it. It's not, I'm not sick. I was out of breath, and it is hanging in there. So uh, we're in Acts 13. You can turn to Acts 13. On your, in your Bible, get the attention of one of the ushers as they are coming around. And uh, let's just pray and get into it. It's always a little awkward when you're in the middle of a chapter. We're going to pick up in verse 14. But uh, God is going to speak to us tonight. So Father, we just thank you, Lord, again for your word. We thank you that you uh, do speak to us. And so we pray right now, Lord, that we would transcend uh, uh, earth and time and that you would uh, suspend our hearing between heaven and earth, that we would... Be fully fixed on what you speak, Lord. We pray that we'd be aware of your reality and your truth and the power of your word as we hear uh, what you say. It's timeless, Lord, and it teaches, it instructs, it helps, Lord, like a sword. So we open ourselves up to you now, Lord, and we pray that you would do what only you can through the power of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in Acts chapter 13, and we are uh, following the Apostle Paul right now through the early days of his calling as an apostle. He is moving in his calling. And um, it is always interesting thing to, um, to, to look at someone who is truly great and then to see a glimpse, a flashback of them in their early days. So uh, sometimes you'll see a very good athlete who has kind of made it to the top of their game, and uh, you'll see a flash or a clip of them when they were in high school, and uh, you get to see where they began. And uh, the amazing thing is, is that when you see those clips of them in their early days, you see that the greatness uh, is in them even then. You see their form, you see their poise, you see uh, their raw talent, but it's not refined. You know, sometimes like a yo-yo ma, and you hear uh, him on the cello in the early days, and, and there's something about it. It's unrefined, but the greatness is there. And uh, as we follow Paul in, in the early days of his calling as an apostle, we see that he's extremely inexperienced. He doesn't know how to be an apostle. He just knows that he's called to be one, and he's moving within uh, the, the power of that calling and uh, figuring it out really as he goes, which is kind of how it happens. So what we know about Paul thus far is that he is absolutely 
been called of God to be an apostle. And he's moving within that calling. And even though he didn't know how to be an apostle, he was receiving what God had asked of him. And what we are beginning to discover is that everything that he needed to do what God called him to do had already been placed inside of him. And now he's seeing it lived out as he's walking in it. We're seeing his instincts coming out in his actions. And a couple things that we've seen already thus far is we've seen that there is a drive within him to move and to move quickly. He is not allowing uh, the momentum of, of his calling and what God's given him to slow him down. He's not stopping for too long in any one place. He knows that his mission is big. His mission field is very big. And so he refuses uh, to lose that momentum. He has in him this understanding that the spirit of God is not idle. That is, that energy gravitates towards action. And he knows it. And so we see him already moving quite quickly from place to place, not uh, losing the momentum. Uh, We also know, if you've been alive for any period of time, that not only does energy kind of gravitate towards action, but idleness will always bring uh, a sense of cloudiness and drowsiness to us. And you know what that's like when you sit around for too long, you lose momentum, you lose motivation. Again, today, while I was running, you know, it's very muddy, it's very wet. And what I noticed is that everywhere where there's running waters that are moving, the waters are crystal clear. But everywhere where there's standing water and it's idle, it's very cloudy. And that's true. That's just something that happens. If we sit idle too long, we kind of lose vision. You can't see. There's not clarity and everything. So Paul's moving very quickly. He knows that every moment matters. And he knows that because momentum always starts with a moment. And so he's taking advantage of every moment that he has. He, ha- he takes advantage of an interaction with a, 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 a kind of a sorcerer, a demon-possessed Jew named Bar-Jesus. And he runs into this guy, and he, he seizes that opportunity. It turns into opposition, but he uses that to go on offense because that interaction led him to the deputy of the country that he was in. And so he had an audience with this very powerful, prominent man, Sergius Paulus, And through the events that transpired, Sergius Paulus came to know Jesus Christ personally because Paul wasn't going to waste any opportunity. He knew that no matter who I'm talking to, I'm going to stay aware of how God might want to use this situation uh, to fulfill what it is that he's called me to do. It's not only uh, an, an, an opportunity from go on offense, but the whole interaction is actually an omen. And it kind of prefigures the entirety of his future. Because what, what, he, what he has happened is that he, he comes in contact with this Jew, this Bar-Jesus guy, and he's resisted by the Jew. But in the process, he comes in contact with a Gentile, this guy, Sergius Paulus, and he ends up giving his life to Christ. And that's going to kind of be the story of Paul's entire life on earth. He's going to be resisted by the Jews and embraced by the Gentiles. And though he doesn't realize yet that that's what's going to happen, we see it beginning even now, even here at the beginning. Now, what's amazing to me is that Paul did not learn any of the things that he's doing in any classroom. He didn't learn it in church, and he didn't learn it from a book. Because he is pioneering what we would know today as as a mission field or a mission. It didn't exist yet. I mean, there were people that went out from Jerusalem, they went to one place and they stopped and planted a church. 
but no one has ever done up to this time what Paul is doing, and that is moving from place to place and seeking to spread the gospel as quickly uh, and as uh, widely as he absolutely can. And so where he did learn what he's doing was simply through the daily accumulation of life experience. Because when you see the instincts and what he's doing, you realize that he didn't learn those things. No one taught him those things, but he had been being equipped all along through the things that he had been going through. And that gives me a lot of hope for my own life. Because I realized that Paul was called to be an apostle, but he didn't know how to be an apostle. And so he just did what he knew he was called to do, and then he found that when he needed resource, it was already there. It had been placed inside of him by what God had called him to do and what God had gifted him to do. And many of us, we know what that feels like because many of us know what it feels like. We're called to be a dad, but I don't know how to be a dad. I don't know how to raise kids. I don't know what goes into that. And and so I can find myself pulling back from that calling and saying, I don't have what I need, or I can embrace it And I can say, no, God, if you've called me to do this, then you've already placed inside of me what I need. And though I don't know what it looks like or how to do it, I'm just going to do it, and I'm going to trust that you're going to show up. And that's how he shows up. You're called to be a mom, but you don't know how to be a mom. It's the same exact thing. I'm called to be a man, but I don't know how to be a man. Listen, just start doing the thing that you know you're called to do, and God's going to show up in the moment of it. And you don't need to look at how anybody else did it in the past or how anybody else is doing it now. And especially in the arena of parenting, because I can tell you absolutely is that no one has ever raised your kids and no one ever will have to raise your kids. And the way that you parent your kids is going to be unique to what they need. And only God knows what that is. And God has given you the sum total of all that you need to parent those kids through the things that you've gone through your entire life. And so the way that you were treated when you were a child, whether it was good or bad, was equipping you for what you're going to need to raise your kids now. Because some of the things that we go through early on in life teach us what to do, and some of those things teach us what not to do. I remember as a young man being treated by my parents in such a way wherein they would just say no to everything that that I ever asked. And and I was so different. I was the black sheep of my family. Because in my family, I don't think growing up, I ever saw in my house or car or clothes one speck of dirt or dust ever. And, And I am an outdoor person. And I remember driving in the car and seeing woods, and I just needed to be in the trees. I needed to be in the woods. That was just me. And I would say, can I go? And no. And I and I intuitively knew I will never do that as a parent. I remember like knowing, 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 knowing that I could climb up a wall. And I would say, can I? And they'd say, no. Like, I know. And, and so, so now as a parent, instinctively, when my kids say, can I? I say, yes, climb the wall. Go do it. Get dirty. And, and that's something that's in me. It's instinctive. It's there. There are other things that were good examples. You see what I'm saying is that God gives you what you need along the way. And so your present experiences are equipping you for your future roles. And the things that you've been through in your past have equipped you for what you're doing now. So if God's called you to do something, just do it. And that's what we see early on in the experience in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He doesn't know how to be a missionary, but he's just being a missionary. 
And in the moment he needs it, the instincts are there in order for him to know to do what it is that he's called us to do. It's true in every stage of our life. What you are going through right now is equipping you for what's coming that you don't even know yet. So just walk in it. We also know thus far is that Paul, the apostle, he doesn't know how to be an apostle, but he does know who to be as an apostle. We saw at the tail end of our, our, our study last time together that his name has changed. He's gone from Saul, which means desired, to Paul, which means small. He took to this name that is something significant that means something that's diminished or something that is insignificant or small. And here's what I, what I think is, is significant about Paul doing that in, in, in this time very early in his ministry or in his calling or in his future, what he's going into, is that he realized that faith, to believe in God and to place his trust in Jesus fully for his life, was so much more than just a transactional forgiveness of sins. Because that's what we think of, right? When we think of faith, we think, okay, well, I put my trust in Jesus and he forgives my sin. He takes my sin and he gives me his righteousness. And that's what it means to walk by faith. That I'm, I'm putting my faith in Jesus. It's a transaction that's going on. But what Paul realized is that it wasn't just a transaction. It was all inclusive into every area of his life. That to walk by faith means that he walked in the reality that God truly loved him. That God was truly actually for him. He walked in the belief and in the reality that God made him. And because he was made in the image of God, God had instilled something inside of him, of himself, something that was bigger than he was, something that would uh, turn into something amazing. He also believed that God had called him, that he wasn't a mistake, that he wasn't a byproduct of, uh, of mass evangelism and his role was just to sit in a pew in a church somewhere. But God had a calling for him, a reason, a purpose for his life. He also believed that he was a byproduct of God's faithfulness, meaning he believed that God was going to be faithful to him, that he wasn't going to just let him, let him go if he made a mistake, that he was free to make a mistake. And if he did, God was going to be faithful to him. He believed that God was going to lead his life and that God would show him mercy, not just once at the beginning, but he would show him mercy continually. And he believed in this and thus he walked in it. And here's what it led him to. It led him to make a decision that he wasn't going to walk in his own ability or his own sufficiency, but he was going to make himself small, Paul, and that he was going to lean primarily upon the greatness and the size of God, that he was not going to consider himself sufficient for his own future, but he was going to lean on God for his future, his greatness, and so this is what we've seen thus far in Paul. Now, he leaves Paphos, this first island that he moved across, and they get on a ship and they go back to the mainland. They land in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, on the northern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And it's there that John Mark, the young man that came with them, he says, guys, I can't handle this. The pressure's too high. I have to go back to Jerusalem. I suddenly feel called to go home. And Saul and, or Paul and Barnabas, rather, they move on. And so they go from there and we pick up the story in Acts chapter 13, verse 14. It says, when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, that's in Turkey, in Asia Minor. And it says that they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and they sat down. 
And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers or leaders of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, You men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Now, I want you to put yourself in in the the shoes of Paul and Barnabas for a minute because, again, they don't know what they're doing. I mean, they're traveling. They've just gotten from the coastland. They've come inland. They land in this new city. They know they're called by God to do something there. They don't know where to begin, who to talk to, and so they make the decision. They say, hey, let's find a church and let's just go to it. Now, a church in those days was a synagogue. That was the closest thing to it. There was no Christian community that was there. And I can imagine that the conversation between them could have gone something like, like, oh, you really want to go there? Because it's really like, it's so not going to do anything for us. I mean, the teaching is so Old Testament. And the form and the style is so liturgical. And it's so void of the spirit. And the songs are the same songs that they sing year after year. And we can almost predict it based on the date, what we're going to hear when we go there. And the people are so dry. They're just not our type of people. I mean, we're New Testament. You know, we're cutting edge. We're early adapters. We're on the front lines of like the Christian movement. And that church is so old. We're not going to get anything out of it. Let's stay home. Let's watch online. Let's just, let's not, let's not take the time to, to just go there. They could have, and many Christians probably would have, had that mentality being in an area where they know there was no good established churches. But what their mentality was is that we are not going to church today because we have something to receive. We're going there because we have something to give. And should we go there, we may have opportunity to give what we have, which they do, and in the process of giving what they have, opportunity comes towards them. I was with my dad over Christmas. He came down and he was visiting and we were just walking around uh, our property and, um, you know, looking at everything and, and just catching up and chatting. And, and my dad just looked at everything. He was kind of just taking in our life because he lives up in Rochester and he's only down a couple times a year. And, and he just looked at me and he said, Nick, he goes, you've had a lot of opportunities and good things happen in your life because of people in the church, haven't you? And I said, dad, Every single thing that you can see in my life is the byproduct of people in the church. There's not one thing that you can point to in my life or that I own, whether it's physical or invisible, whether it's in my family or whether it's opportunities that have come to my family. There is nothing that hasn't come through people in the church. All of it has come through people in the church. And my life has been so richly and amazingly blessed for no other reason than because of people in the church. And every one of those things or opportunities or circumstances happened unexpectedly when I was in church. I was interacting with individuals and in conversations that I didn't plan or expect, things came up that turned into life-changing opportunities or circumstances or things, and I could just spout them off. It would be over and over and over again. But all of it is the result of the interaction of the body of Christ. And here's what I'm convinced of, is that every single time, I'm going to look at the camera for this, <laughs> you make a decision to physically come to church and interact with the body of Christ every time, not maybe, every single time you come and interact with the body of Christ, something will happen 
in an exchange of giving and receiving that will turn into something in the future that you will look back at and you will say, it's because I was in church on a certain particular day. It will always, always happen. Even if it is very, very, very small, something will happen because we're the body of Christ and there is something that happens in the exchange. They go to church, they get the opportunity that they were hoping to get and good things do come from it. And so Paul's sermon begins in verse 16. It extends all the way through verse 41. I am not going to spend an incredible amount of time on it because he basically preaches the gospel. And and we preach the gospel. You're going to hear the gospel in it. Okay, but what I do want to do is I want to point out to you how Paul brilliantly communicates with people in a way that connects. So he begins in verse 16. It says that Paul stood up and he beckoned with his hand. And he said, men of Israel and you that fear God, give audience. So he begins very simply by engaging his audience and letting them know that he has a message. He lets them know that he has something to say. If you ever get the opportunity to speak to a person or a group of people, please have something to say. And let them know very early on that you have something to say. So he does that. And then he gives in verse 17 some history. He says, the God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with a high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of 40 years, he suffered their manners in the wilderness. They wandered in the desert after they were set free from Egypt for 40 years. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave to them judges for about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, God said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all of my will. And so what he does very concisely and very simply is he lays out the history of the nation of Israel from the time of Egypt all the way up until David the king. And the reason that he does that is that he gives historical credibility to his education and his message. He gives them substance that they can intellectually agree with and understand to connect with him and also to give respect to him that he knows what he's talking about. And that's an important part of our communication is that we should know what we're talking about. If you're going to talk to people, have some understanding which he does. He demonstrates, and thus he has their attention. Thus far, they're saying, yes, we understand. You obviously know your stuff. You're educated. You are qualified. You know what your, uh, what your, 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 your content is. And so now he connects it to them. He brings it to uh, a point after giving them context and a backdrop and a line of reason. He brings it to a point in verse 23, very quickly. He says, of this man's seed, David's seed, God has, according to his purpose, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. 
If at all they were thinking, where are you going with this? He now tells them very quickly. He says that it was from the seed of David, as was promised of God, a savior has been given and he tells us his name. His name is Jesus. Now, when John, John the Baptist had first preached before his coming, the coming of Jesus, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John fulfilled his course, he said, whom think ye that I am? I'm not he, I'm not the savior, but behold, there comes one after me whose shoes of his feet, I am not worthy to loose. Okay, so what he does is he brings it to the point, and, and here's something that is so masterful about Paul's communication, is that he connects his content to the present moment of their lifetime. He's not giving them a lesson about history that just stays in history, but he's immediately connecting it to the here and now, and what does it mean? Whenever I get a chance to talk to younger people about preaching or teaching or communicating or talking, uh, I had a conversation with my son because he's getting into it. Every now and again, he teaches the young adults or the youth group. And, 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 I, and, I, and I want to, but I don't want to because I want him to figure it out and I, I don't want to like be intrusive and I want him to let me in. But the, I said, this, can I say one thing? Can I just say one thing? And then, then it's two things and three things and five things, you know. But can I just say one thing? And that, this is the most important. I say, please lead in with life. Lead in with life. Let your audience know that what you're saying means something to them now and today and do it quickly early on in your discussion. Because too many times what happens is that people lead in with theology. They lead in with history. And nobody in the audience has a clue what it means or why it matters so they don't hear it. They don't engage and then by the time you bring it to, to life, they say, oh yeah, yeah, I can relate to that. But they didn't listen to anything you said before that. So the content that was bringing background and depth to what you're now saying is already gone. Lead in with life. We see Paul doing that early on. He's saying, listen, this matters now. David matters now. Moses matters now. It all matters now and today. He says, listen, he says, men and brethren, verse 26, children of the stock of Abraham and whosoever among you now that fear God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet they desired Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree or from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead and he was seen many days by them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, good news, how that the promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. He says, essentially, listen, here is my message. Jesus was prophesied. 
He lived, he died, he rose, he was seen, and it was testified that he was risen. And has, it, it, the message has credibility because of the substance and the testimony that was given. And thus he says, here is my message. The promise is fulfilled. The proof is in the scripture and in history. God said it and God did it. The offer is forgiveness in exchange for faith. And there's a warning that's attached to it. He says, verse 34, as concerning that he raised him from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore, he says also in another Psalm, that you shall not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell to sleep. He died and was, was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he, Jesus, whom God raised again, saw no corruption, meaning that the, the prophecy was speaking of Jesus. So be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, by Jesus, listen, all that believe, all that trust, all that put their faith in what he did are justified. That means that you are looked upon as though you are innocent. You are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Meaning that all of the things that you are trying to perform in your effort and yet have come up short and has not taken away your guilt or the power of sin in your life through faith in a risen Savior, Jesus, not only are those sins forgiven, but the power of those sins is broken in your life. Then the warning in verse 40, beware, therefore, lest that come upon you, which is spoken in the prophets. Behold, you despisers, people that reject, and wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. He says, listen, there is a danger that you may hear this message and that you may find it so extraordinarily simple that the work that God has performed in raising his son from the dead to set you free from sin is so simple that you don't believe it and you despise it and you reject it and thus you perish. You are not recipients of the good news of the salvation that comes only through Jesus. Now, that's the end of Paul's message. He stops it right there. And it's so good because it's so short. I'm so jealous. I don't know how he did that. I'm still learning. I'm still trying. But, but he, he, he does all of the things that must be done in, in every message. He answers the five questions. What do I want them to hear? He gives them the gospel. Why do I want them to hear it? Because the gospel saves. What do I want them to do? I want them to believe and receive it. Why do I want them to do it? Because I don't want them to die. And how will I make them remember? And believe me, they remembered, as we will see in just a moment, probably what made them remember was the fact that he was doing this with authority in the joy of Jesus in his heart without any preparation or notes and yet with a depth of knowledge and understanding and connection and concern and zeal and spirit and passion that is probably the most alive sermon they've ever heard within their whole lives. And thus he gives the message to them and it says in verse 42, the outcome that when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles, 
besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. So put yourself in the scene. The Gentiles would be on the outskirts. Any Gentiles that were there would be kind of, you know, not allowed to be intermingling as closely with the Jewish people that were there. And as the Jewish people kind of file out and really don't give much care for what was spoken, the Gentiles that were there, they say, whoa, whoa, what did you say? Did you just say justified from all things which you cannot be justified from the law of Moses? They besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So they were interested, they were curious, and Paul reinforced the things that he preached in private. But watch what happens in verse 44. It says that the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. Now, this was not a Jewish city. This was a predominantly Gentile city. It's in the heart of the Roman Empire. It's in the middle of Asia Minor. And as the word goes forth that these men preached this message about Jesus, in one week, the word travels, word of mouth, no social media, no Instagram, no DM, no mass campaigns of invitation, but just word of mouth, like you've got to hear the message that these men are preaching. And it says that almost, can you imagine almost the whole city comes to this little synagogue in this city, this Roman city of Antioch in Pisidia. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. They didn't like the fact that Paul had more influence than they did. And they spoke against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. So Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. The gospel should go to the Jew first. But seeing that you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And here's his reasoning, verse 47, for, that's a reason word, so has the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Okay, now this is how in verse 42 and 43, this whole, this whole uh, exchange about Jew and Gentile and we're gonna go to the Gentiles now. This is how callings are refined, okay? Because Paul, his structure, his form was always to go to the synagogue first. He did that once before. He actually did that twice before. And now he's doing it again. He's going to the synagogue, to the place where the word would be preached. That was his structure. That was his system. But what he is finding is that God is not calling him to reach Jews. God is calling him to reach Gentiles. That's why when he tries to reach Jews, it doesn't work. Because he doesn't have the momentum and the power of God behind him to do it. But the Gentiles are listening, and he's getting a response from the Gentiles. And he is adapting. That's a big word, because we don't like to adapt, right? Like, we kind of want God to adapt. But he's adapting to what he sees God doing. And this brings up an important principle that I hope you can make a core value of your life. And that is that structure must submit to spirit. Okay, 
structure is important. If you don't have structure, you know that it's important to have structure. If you have structure, you know that it's important to have structure. Because if you don't have structure, you usually have chaos. You're just, mo- just kind of like blowing all around and, and, and you're going no direction at all. Structure in life is important. But structure must submit to spirit. Because we must allow God to take our structure and prioritize it, sometimes break it down completely, and we must yield to him to move us in the direction that he wants us to go. I, I, I like to, to um, think of Elijah. Remember Elijah, the prophet? Remember when he had, that, he had this contest with all these um, pagan Baal worshipers? And, and, and he, he kind of calls him out. And there's this epic moment in the Bible where this uh, mighty prophet kind of stands alone. And he says, he says, listen, let's have a contest and let's see whose God is really God. He said, let's do this. You build an altar and I'll build an altar. We'll both erect a structure. You make an altar, I'm going to make an altar. And he said, we're both going to get an ox. And you put an ox on your altar, I'm going to put an ox on, on, on my altar. And we're both going to pray. You pray to your God and I'm going to pray to my God. And let's see which God will send fire down from heaven and consume the ox on the altar. And let's do it. And he goes, you first. And so they say, yeah, we'll show you. Look at, there are 400 of us. There's only one of you. We've got numbers on our side. So they build their altar. They put the bull on it. And they begin to pray. They begin to call out. I mean, they say, God, you come down, Bell. You are powerful in this whole thing. Nothing. And so they begin to cut themselves and scream louder. And Elijah mocks them. He goes over and he says, maybe your God's in the bathroom. He, he literally says that. He goes, Is he, maybe he's busy. Maybe he's asleep. Cry louder. Nothing happens. And then the, the, the sun begins to set, and he says, all right, it's my turn. And he says, go get four barrels of water. Now, there had been a drought for three and a half years. You don't waste water in a drought. But they go, and they get four barrels of water up on a mountain, Mount Carmel. And he says, douse the, the sacrifice. It's fire and water don't mix. And so they, they, he says, do it again. They do it again. Do it again. They do it again. Three times, 12 barrels of water. And it says that the water ran down the altar and it filled this trench. It's kind of like this moat around this structure and about around this bull. And then Elijah just prays a simple prayer. He says, God. He says that they might know that there is a God in Israel and that I have done these things according to your word. And then boom, fire falls down from heaven. And it not only consumes the bull, but it destroys the structure. It consumes the altar, and it also dries up all of the water that was all around it. And in that moment, it was known that God is God. And it dispelled the prophets of Baal. And it put Elijah and the true worshipers of God on the offensive that had been on the defensive. And it changed everything. But you see, there was structure, and then there was spirit, and the spirit was stronger than the structure. And it's important in our lives that we have both. Because if there had been no structure, then the spirit wouldn't have come. And I believe that God wants us to be structured in our lives. He wants us to be ordered and orderly and, and have a system and have priorities and have responsibilities and walk in structure. But if we adhere so much to the structure that we give no place to the spirit of God to move things around in our lives and do things in our lives, then we miss out on the spirit and what he wants to do. Spirit must rule over structure. And Paul knew it. And he said, listen, this is our way. We, we're going, if he had stayed in structure, he'd be like, no, we go to the Jews. We talk to Jews. When we reach all the Jews in Asia Minor, then we'll reassess. 
No, he sees, no, God is not moving in the Jews. God's moving the Gentiles. We're going to adjust what we're doing. Mom and dad, sometimes you have to adjust what you're doing because the way you're doing it isn't reaching your kids. You're not getting through to your kids in that way. And so the spirit needs to intervene. The way you're running business, the way you're interacting with your friends, the way you're treating your spouse, sometimes the structure of it is not right. And you need the spirit to move in a different direction and see where is God moving in the middle of this. His calling is refined. And they realize we are called to the Gentiles. This is what God has done. Now, here's verse 48. I am not glad about verse 48. Because I was doing great in this chapter. I was really just, yes, this is good. This is easy. Yes, I understand it. I see it. Then we get verse 48. And it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. And they glorified the word of the Lord and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Did did you hear what, what he just said? He just said that as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Unpack it. Double click. Wait a minute. So they were ordained which means that before anything happened, they were already chosen by God to have eternal life. They were ordained, as many as were ordained unto eternal life. They were foreappointed to eternal life. Then they chose. Those that were foreordained then chose. They believed. They made a decision and they were saved. And all of a sudden, my brain goes, whoa, 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 wait, back up. If they were foreordained, then they didn't make a choice. They were foreordained. If they made a choice, they weren't foreordained, they made a choice. Those two things both can't be true. There's some exclusivity in, in what's going on there. Here's what I'll say about that. Is that the Bible declares in several different places that he, God, that he is the alpha, that's the very beginning, and he's the omega, that is the very ending. And he always uses those things in the same sentence, that he's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the ending. But what the Bible never says, it's implied, but it never says it, is that he is also all the letters in between. Okay? The alpha is the beginning, the omega is the end, but there's a whole lot of letter combinations that happen in the middle. And God just says, that's going to just be way over your head. How I'm going to move in all that. And what happens between me saying I've chosen and these people believing the beginning is I've chosen. The ending is that they choose. And you're never going to fully understand everything that happens in the middle. We are right now in the middle. We're in living right now in all the other letters in the alphabet between A and Z. And the fact of the matter is that there is a great degree of blindness and cloudiness in the mix-up of all of those letters and how everything works out. We read a verse like this, and basically what we read is that before there was A, Z was already known and appointed by God. And, and, And as I think about that, 
it, it kind of discourages me a little bit, and here's why. Because this verse could, could just as easily read this way. It could say, as many as were ordained to poverty kept making bad financial decisions. As many as were ordained to loneliness kept making poor relationship choices. As many as were ordained to mediocrity kept getting in their own way and couldn't get out of their way. And all of a sudden I'm going like, wait a minute. If I look at the past track record of my life, God, what was I ordained to? Because this isn't giving me a lot of hope in this thing. If I predict my future based on my past, things aren't looking too good for me right now. How does this work in the context of a good God? I have always hated the game of chess. Does anybody else hate the game of chess in here? Do you know why I hate chess? Two reasons. Number one, because I always lose. I lose to my eight-year-old. I cannot play chess because my foresight is horrible. I am not good at like playing that whole game. It reminds me, this is the second reason I hate it. It reminds me every time I play chess, how bad I am at predicting outcomes. I cannot do it. In the mid, in the mid 1990s, there was a debate as computer uh, power and computer technology was advancing. There was a debate about whether or not computer power computer uh, technology, artificial intelligence, would ever be smart enough to beat a human in the game of chess. And in the late 90s, IBM created this computer called Deep Blue. And they put Deep Blue up against the best chess player in the world, this guy named Gary Kasparov. And in 1997, for the first time, the computer defeated Gary Kastrov, the best chess player in the world at chess. And the way that it did it is this, is that Deep Blue did one thing, is that it played chess by evaluating 200 million board positions per second. <laughs> okay? <laughs> now, that, that, think about that. 200 million board positions per second. Now, 25 years later, we are now in the year 2022. And there is an advancement in artificial intelligence. Today, there's a thing called deep mind technology. And what the computing power of today's artificial intelligence is, is that a, a computer can calculate an infinite number of board positions per second, meaning that there is absolutely no limit to the amount of board positions deep, uh, deep mind technology can uh, analyze and predict. It's always predictive of what its opponent is going to do next, and that ensures that the computer will always win. That's what the artificial intelligence does. Okay, now chess is very complex. At least it is to me, maybe to you or to others, it's very simple. Okay, and if a computer can do that, that's something. But life, life is infinitely more complex. And when I realize how poor I am at predicting outcomes and seeing how alpha ends up at omega and everything that happens in between and how my choices and my decisions have consequences and cause other actions and bring other things about, it almost makes me want to die because I realize I'm just going to continually keep messing up my life. Wouldn't it be nice 
if we could download technology in ourselves that could help us to relate to the future and navigate decisions and outcomes. Now, when we talk about the future in circles of faith, it creates a conflict. And here's why. Because either, okay, either the future is predestined by God, and therefore it is fixed, it is set, it is fate, and God is in control of everything. And what that means is that free will and choice is actually an illusion. It doesn't really exist because everything has already been set. Or God created the future open and we do have free will and choice. And therefore God doesn't know the future and therefore God can't be in control. And all of a sudden we say, wait a minute, wait, both of those things are erroneous. We know that God's in control of all things and we know that everyone has free choice. How can both of those things be true? Here's what's striking to me is that we have created a computer that is so comprehensive in its ability to predict human choice that it can intuitively predict the future. Now, if we can create a computer that complex that doesn't control the player's choices and can't coerce the player to choose, and yet the algorithm predicts where the player is going, if we can create artificial intelligence like that, then why would it be difficult for us to understand a God who is infinitely more complex than artificial intelligence and has more depth than any computer system that we could create, who understands all of our choices and where they're going and still gives us complete free will while still being one step ahead of us the whole time? He's able to do that. And all of a sudden, what happens is that that singular fact that there is a God who is so sovereignly predictive of everything I will ever choose as well as everyone else and can bring it to a winning outcome, it makes one decision, one, because that's what I can handle, one move. It makes one decision the most important decision. And that is this. It's my choice to believe the most important thing, to put my trust in the one God who can do all things and know all things and lead all things and that can win in every outcome. What if you could access software that would help you predict the future, that would help you anticipate how your choices would affect outcomes in your future? Do you know what David said? David said, the Lord is my shepherd. He said, I shall not want. He said, he leads me, which means that he is the one that is orchestrating the events and the decisions and the outcomes and the algorithms of my life. He leads me. He restores me, which means that he takes the mistakes of my past and the bad moves that I have made that have caused chaos in my history, and he restores those things so that they don't tell me what my destiny is going to be. They're restored he says that he prepares a table, which means that he's already out in front of me and he's setting things up in the way that they need to be set up for my life. He says he is with me, meaning that right now he is present with me. He's leading me. And he declares at the end of the 23rd Psalm, he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Interesting thing about if something is following you 
It means that you can't see it in front of you. Oftentimes when we're looking forward in our lives, we're, we, we're like, oh my goodness, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen, where I'm going, I don't know, I can't figure this out at all. But how many times we look back in our life and we say, oh my goodness, look at how God was orchestrating and leading and look at the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God and the power of God and what's behind me. Listen, the intent behind human artificial intelligence is that no matter what moves you make, the computer wins every time. But the intent behind God's intelligence and his shepherding hand and his will is that we win, you win every time when you're connected to him. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 2.14. He said, thanks be to God, or I thank God, which always causes us to triumph. That means that he always leads us to victory. Meaning that no matter what moves you make in your life, God always has a way because he has an infinite ability to analyze the playing board and to move you in a way that brings you to a positive outcome. And that makes the decision to trust in Jesus the most important decision of all. Listen, if God was willing to give his son, his son Jesus, to be the sacrificial substitution that would cause your sins and my sins to be forgiven, and if he was willing to forgive you personally, not just 2,000 years ago in one blanket thing, but to forgive you personally, in spite of all the things you've done and all the things that are in you and all the train wreck that has been your past, if he's willing to forgive you where you were at your worst, and then to invite you to participate in his faithfulness and his favor, and couple that with the knowledge you have of the train wreck that you're able to produce within your own life by saying, nah, I'll just keep trying to do it my own way, then why wouldn't you choose to believe in him? You know, the outcome, as you read the rest of the chapter, you come down to verse 51, there was a mighty revival that took place in Antioch and Pisidia. And Paul and Barnabas end up leaving. They get thrust out because of the conflict with the Jews and they leave. But it says that the Gentiles that were there, it says that they were filled with great joy and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. Meaning that the God who brings all things together for good was now living inside of them. That's what God wants to do. There's some that are here tonight and maybe it, it's for you that you need to cross the line of faith and put your trust fully in Jesus. And to say, Lord, I, I can't do this because when I look at my past and I see the messes that I've made, and if I were to analyze where my future is going based on the things that I see in my past, then things don't look very good. And the reason is because we're horrible chess players. But if God, if you have the ability to lead me in such a way as you see all things and all outcomes... And if you're willing to be with me and to lead me and to restore me and to prepare the future for me and to bring me to a place where I can look back and say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. And if no matter what happens in the world around me, whether it's the decisions of others or the decisions I make, that you always have just one more move that you can turn it around and bring it to my victory. Then Lord, I need to be joined to you. I need 
to be connected and communing with Jesus. I need to be in relationship with the true and living God. And if you have yet to cross the line of faith, I pray that God would just give you the moment of clarity, even right now, to see where you've been, to see where you are, and to see where you're going, either with him or without him. And you might open your heart to Jesus and say, God, I believe that you're for me because your cross testifies. That if you didn't spare your own son, then how much more will you not now freely with him give me whatever it is that I need? Lord, that, that faith is not just transactional. Okay, I'm forgiven. My name's written in heaven. See it in 50 years. But it's all consuming. That it's every part of my life. That it's today and tomorrow and my decisions and my calling and where I'm going. It's your mercy and your forgiveness and the multiplicity of chances and the favor that you always win. And I believe it. I ask you tonight, would you, would you, in the quietness of your own soul, receive Jesus and just say, Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. I want you to be my Lord. I want to know what it is to follow you and to know your fellowship, to know your salvation, and to know your leading. Because he answers it every time. And he brings you to that place every time. Father, we just thank you tonight, Lord, for the, the, the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your ability, Lord, to communicate to us across the barriers of time and space. And you're able to show us the past, present, and future of our existence and to awaken us. And I pray tonight, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that every person here would be able to, in the free will of understanding who you are, say, Jesus, I give you my life. And that you, Lord, would write their names in heaven. And that you would settle the salvation issue in their hearts. And that you would begin leading and guiding and shepherding them. So thank you, Lord, that this is who you are. Thank you, this is what you want to do. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.